welcome to part two of Mainly History's Halloween special about George Burroughs, the condemned minister of the Salem Witch Trials. I'm your host, Ian Saxine. We'll get right to it so we don't leave you hanging. to George Burroughs and his yep. execution then. Yeah. So you mentioned he was hanged. Now, yep. were there other legal methods of execution in Massachusetts at this time for various crimes? Um, hanging is, is, the, is the standard offense. There, there is the one, of, uh, the one asterisk, of course, is Giles Corey is literally pressed to death, but they're not trying to execute him for there. They're really just trying to literally Squeeze the press, truth out of him. Express the truth out of him, right. He, he, Corey, by the way, did plead not guilty. But after that, he stood mute. What he was then asked was like, are you willing to accept the trial by the country? That is, are you willing to accept the trial by jury? Corey wouldn't answer them, so they couldn't go on with the proceedings. Mm. He knew by this point, he was if he pled not guilty, they were going to kill him anyhow. Right. So yes, hanging is the, is, the, is the standard method for execution. And I actually was on the team a few years ago who helped figure out and confirm the execution site where the executions took place on a lower part of, of Gallows Hill in Salem, known as Proctor's Ledge. And we studied this pretty carefully, and we determined that the executions, including the four sets of executions, including on August 19th, when Burroughs and four others were executed, that they, they actually would have been, been hanged. And they would have literally probably been, um, there's a description of, of Burroughs' executions, but the only one we have written by an observer a few years later, an observer, Robert Califf, by the way, who doesn't like Puritans. So I, we take it with a grain of salt. But I think probably the description of it is probably pretty accurate. And it just describes the fact that Burroughs is turned off. And to us, that sounds like a kind of a horrible kind of slang, you know, like, like and I wondered if it was like, like throwing the switch or something, you know, on the electric chair. But turned off literally means that there's a new... St- tied to a tree and a ladder put up next to it. And you climb the ladder, the noose is put over your head and your, your legs are literally turned off the ladder. You hang oh. there. And I'd also, I don't mean to get too gruesome here, but since it's the Halloween season and I know people are intrigued by such things, um, they, did not, they, they did not have the, what we would call the long drop in the 17th century for a noose um, where you, your neck is broken. It's a mm-hmm. short drop where you, you basically, they, they push you off the ladder and you literally hang there and slowly strangle to death. And, and it might take somewhere, it could take as long as or nine or 10 minutes for you to strangle to death. So this would have been a gruesome, horrible scene with George Burroughs choking. Was this intentional, by the way, where they just well, wanted they the victims to suffer? Or was this an issue of, <laughs> we don't want to go through the time and expense of building a proper gallows? Well, even with a proper gallows, it wasn't really until the late 18th century that they perfected the more, shall we say, humanitarian technique of breaking someone's neck by hanging them. So this Uh. is the way, pretty much this is the way all hangings took place. Uh, And it did take some even there's even all sorts of stories about experimentation by, you know, by the British military and so on to try to determine out the proper length of rope to achieve the proper distance to drop to break someone's neck. Frankly, you want to humanely break break their neck, but you don't want them to drop so far that you literally decapitate them. I mean, it's pretty gruesome stuff. But so Burroughs literally would have had this horrible fate. We know in England, like at Tyburn, when this happened, in some cases, the victim's family 
would literally come up to them and pull on their legs to try to hasten wow. their end to increase the pressure. It's gruesome. I really, I've talked way too much about this, but the, the point is mm-hmm. um, after this happens, uh, even so before this Burroughs happens, was tied to a tree. Tied to his, a, tied, he's, and his, his fellows were too. This was just, they used correct. a tree. They, oh. they used a tree, probably a large oak tree, perhaps. We don't know the species. And, they, and one at a time, they go up the ladder and they're turned off. But before Burroughs is turned off, one of the things that was believed about witches was they could not perfectly recite the Lord's Prayer. And the intriguing piece with Burroughs, of course, as a minister, he knew the Lord's Prayer well, and he maintained, like everyone else, maintained his faith and his innocence to the end. And they essentially asked him if he had any last words, and he proceeds to give off an absolutely perfect version of the Lord's Prayer, at which point the crowd is kind of going like, "Mm, well, maybe this minister is okay, at which point he's turned off and the crowd becomes very restless. At that point, Caleb says, and again, take it with a grain of salt because he hates Cotton Mather. He says, Cotton Mather from horseback watching the hangings invoked the crowd and calmed them down and said, you know, sometimes Satan appears as the angel of light. That is, aha, Satan was helping George Burroughs recite that Lord's Prayer. Don't you believe it for a minute? He's guilty. And at that point, the proceedings continued. Four more people were hanged that day and another, another eight in the, the following month of, of September. And by the way, I know you're going to ask this question, what happened after that? Caliph then goes on to describe the, essentially claiming that the bodies of the five victims, including Burroughs, were thrown in a very shallow pit covered with dirt. I believe that because we know from Samuel Sewell's diary that it was incredibly hot that day and that basically bodies could not keep above ground. He had a friend that died in Boston that day who had to be buried the same day. That's how bad it was. But we do know that the bodies of the loved ones were recovered by their families under covers of darkness and probably brought home or to a spot where they would be welcomed for a quiet but anonymous burial. So, um, What absolutely- relatives did Burroughs leave behind? Or what? Well, Burroughs had a large family. He had, he had many children. He had a, a third wife who was alive up in Wells, and he had friends in Salem. Uh, again, we, we know there were some people, including some prominent people, who tried to act in his defense, and at one point who tried to arrange a meeting before he was formally tried between Burroughs and some of the accusers to basically have them sit down together in a tavern and try to sort this out, because clearly George is a good guy and this must be a mistake. And we're not sure if his family was there for the execution. Um, If they were not, we assume that friends would have seen to him being buried, again, um, anonymously. There were many family cemeteries on family farms back then. We know that the families, for sure, there are traditions and families of John Proctor, Rebecca Nurse, and several other victims of the families coming in under covers of darkness and removing the bodies. And the Quaker families who live nearby in Salem have traditions in their families of hearing this. Imagine, you know, in a, in a quiet town in the 17th century, you, if you see a lantern up on the hill and hear a noise of shovels, yeah, you hear that. And uh, these people went up and helped families reclaim their, their members and, and take them for proper burial. Um, so I think we can assume that, that George Burroughs did have proper burial somewhere uh, as befitting a Puritan minister. But also, too, his family <laughs> continued pressing claims against Massachusetts for the next 50 years, insisting on restoring his innocency and on paying for, for damages that they were owed for the losses they suffered at his death. And in other ways, frankly, that the, that the family was sort of shamed humiliated and treated for perhaps generations after after his death, because make no mistake about it, the stain of witchcraft affected the whole family and would linger. I mean, you know, um, 
again, much like a sort of an accusation of child molestation or abuse might haunt victims and families today. Thinking about this legacy, as interesting of a, of a character in a story as Burroughs is, he hasn't received as much attention as some of the other accused and executed people at Salem. John Proctor and Giles Corey, among some of the men, uh, and there's been other other books on some of the prominent women, yeah. Rebecca Nurse. And, and Biography others. just came out on Rebecca Nurse, yeah. Right. And <laughs> obviously, I'm not uh, I'm not trying to take away from anybody else's attention here of the of the executed. But why do you think that George Burroughs is not among the better known of victims? I think it's it's news to most people who are not diehard Salem followers that there was this, you know, this minister who was among the executed. Yeah, he, he had the worst fate, I think, of having bad PR agents, right? I mean, seriously, Rebecca Nurse has kind of become the most famous one. And in part, I think that's because her family is there. Her house is still there. Mm-hmm. They built the first memorial, you know, kind of in honor of her and the other victims in like the 60, in the 1870s. Um, you know, so um, John Proctor, I think, wouldn't be well known if it wasn't for the crucible, honestly, right? And, and I think to some degree, George Burroughs' case is maybe it's the opposite case, right? Again, that he wasn't a local Salem guy. Mm. didn't have those strong permanent connections to the community, in fact, was from Maine. And Ian, I think, as, as you understand, and the listeners to this podcast know, uh, I think we all sort of feel that, that Maine has never gotten its proper credit in, in American history, particularly colonial history, and that uh, some degrees, you know, all these people from Maine, well, you know, it took a long time for people to even realize those connections. So I think that's part of it. I also think, too, specifically, there is shame there to this day in places like Salem over how these people were treated in 1692. And I think it's bad enough to say that someone like a saintly Puritan grandmother like Rebecca Nurse was executed, perhaps in part because she had bad hearing and didn't hear a question in the trial, but even worse to suggest that you executed a minister, a Puritan minister, a Harvard graduate, what on earth were you people thinking? You know, so I, so I think in this case, you know, it's not the favorite story that like to people tell about the Salem witch trials because it, it isn't a good look, right? And so I, I think, you know, Burroughs hasn't perhaps gotten the attention he deserves. But having said that, my good friend Mary Beth Norton kind of makes Burroughs the, in some ways, the central character, right, in the story. And in fact, I call him the perfect witch because of all the factors we cited. He, I think, in many ways, was the most likely to be a witch. And also, too, by the way, in Black Masses and Satan's Masses, it's really an inversion of normal Christian ritual. But most of all, you really do need a minister to lead the congregation. So what better than to have a minister, Puritan minister, who's converted to Satan's side of the conflict to do that? And I guess the other thing, too, is, again, is like sort of pride of place. I mean, uh, that main connection, in some degrees, you and I found very interesting, but it doesn't do Burroughs any good. But one thing I think we have to mention here is that, in fact, actually, in the 1670s, when Burroughs lived in, in Portland for the first time, he lived on Congress Street. His property included where the Maine Historical Society now sits. His house was probably uh. just down the street around the intersection of Preble and Congress. So, you know, to some degrees, that's really interesting to us. But it also doesn't achieve you immortality when it comes to things like the Salem, Massachusetts witch trials, right? This is very true. The Salem witch trials have, in a sense, been something of a Rorschach test for historians to talk about their favorite aspects of early American or modern, early modern history to put into a book, whether it's gender relations, the frontier, uh, social tensions within communities. But why, have, why has the, the, the Salem witch trials fascinated you for so long? 
Well, actually, you're absolutely right. And in fact, when I teach my, my graduate seminar on it, it really is a historiography course, you know. Here's the community study version of it. Here's the race version of it. Here's the gendered version of it, right? And that each generation has kind of its Salem. I, I think I, I, I find it endlessly fascinating because there is no single answer and there always are new ways of looking at it. And even as I research it, I realize just how many pieces there are in that. I just, when I, when I wrote the book, the contract was for 110, 120,000 words. And once it got up to about 150, 160,000, I realized it had just gone completely off track there. And again, but the story is so big and there's so many pieces to it, right? And there's so many different focuses. Again, what piece of it do you want to chew off? And, and you're right, I think it is, in some ways, it is that reflective moment on Puritan society in the 17th century, but also too, to me, what to me is like, it really is this turning point to me in American history. It is in some ways signals the beginning of the end of Puritanism. And I guess too, particularly for me, since I'm really, I've spent my kind of entire career studying mid to late 17th century Maine in New England, and it is the event that is so pivotal uh, in this whole sort of process, part of these, these the frontier wars, deteriorating relationships between Native Americans and the English and, and, and European peoples of the region. And it, it really is sort of part of this whole kind of collapse of the Massachusetts Bay Colony and, and particularly of, of settlement in Maine. And what we see emerge in the early 18th century, frankly, is, is kind of a different place all around. So to me, it's, it's just endlessly fascinating. And I think the problem is once you start studying it, it is sort of like quicksand. You will find most of us don't just write one book on this. You get dragged in for more. And I think too, is because as you say, there are so many different aspects to this. It is so complicated. There are almost a thousand documents that survive. So one reason we people talk about Salem is because it's so well known. Many of these cases we're talking about in Europe, the whole witch hunt goes on for years, might only have a half dozen letters on file or something. But we know so much about this that it really is, is this endless fascination. And it relates to so many issues we talk about, you know, issues of race and gender and, and, and religion and politics and economics, all kind of wrapped up into one. So it is sort of that, that great endless puzzle. And I, as I like to say, I don't think we will ever write the last word on the Salem Witch Trials. You know, it's, it's an ongoing story. And if anybody thinks they've written the definitive book, they're wrong. Something you said, I, I'd like to ask you to, to expand just a smidge. You talked about the collapse of, of Puritanism towards the end of the 17th century after Salem. Some of my students and some other people interpret this to mean that there was a real decline in religiosity or that people after Salem you know, it just became much, much less devout. And there's even, there was a private museum in Salem, which it had a, an inscription in it that to me was just so historically offensive in so many ways, where they said, after the Salem Wish Trials, the 18th century saw the arrival of the Enlightenment, which, uh. Uh, and so the pursuit of science and reason was the exact opposite of what Puritanism was about. And so therefore, Puritanism declined. And I'm thinking to myself like, oh no, who let this? And I'm not even going to name the museum because our listeners shouldn't go to some of the, I mean, some of these ones are fun, but like that was just a travesty. So yeah. when you talk about the decline of Puritanism, even though there were plenty of very sure. devout folks living in, in New England, yep. what do you mean? 
So, I mean, there is this, as, 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 as you well know, there's this whole theory of what is called Puritan declension or decline. And to some degrees, you're right, it is absolutely exaggerated. It sort of goes back to the days of the legendary Puritan historian, Perry Miller. And this is the idea that by the 1660s and 1670s, again, these are signs. King Philip's War is a sign. God is terribly angry that the Puritans of Massachusetts have broken their covenant with him as their chosen people. And look at, there are fewer people attending worship than before. Our children are not getting the spirit and deciding to become church members. But again, much, this is really so much more perceived than actual decline. And to some degrees, the idea that people are so upset about the fact that church membership might be declining just a little bit suggest to you how incredibly devout this community is. But on the other hand, too, by realize that in, until the first Massachusetts Bay Charter uh, is revoked in 1683-1684, in order to be a voting citizen of Massachusetts, you have to be an adult male member of the church. And there was only one church, um, the church really back then being the community of saints, not a building, and that was the Puritan church. And then, then what follows with the Dominion of New England and then the, the 1691 charter that Governor Phipps brings and arrives in 1692 in, the, in May in the middle of the witch trials are charters that allow increasing freedom of religion, allows, now, you know, th- let's not get crazy here. We're not going to let everybody worship. Literally Catholics, Catholics are out. <laughs> Catholics, Catholics are out and, 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 and Jews who've made, made, it, made it to Rhode Island by this point, again, are, 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 are not given the time of day. But no longer is the Puritan faith the only faith in Massachusetts. Uh, of course, we have to make way for the Church of England since it is the king's faith. And also, okay, we'll allow Quakers and Baptists as well, right? I mean, um, so it's, it's not much of a change, but it is a little bit. Um, so th- there's a beginning of sort of, of the end of that sort of stranglehold of Puritan faith. But I think to more what I really think of is, is that kind of the decline of Puritanism is, think about this, Governor Phipps, his top advisor, even though this was not a theocracy, his top advisor, Reverend Increase Mather, and that the, the word of the ministers of Massachusetts carried tremendous weight in the colony. And it takes, as we know, that transformation of from Puritan to Yankee, as Richard Bushman calls it, um, from the Puritan church to kind of become the congregational church, takes decades. And frankly, Massachusetts will still have congregationalism as its established orthodoxy into what? I think the about 1830 or so, which means that in every town, even if even if you're allowing, you know, the Baptists and the Quakers to have their faith, the town you live in is still paying for the upkeep of the congregational meeting house and paying the minister's salary and providing him with a house. Yeah, I think that was a big debate for Massachusetts had like a new constitution around 1820, around the time of Maine statehood. And that's when the church lost it. That's when they began to lose it. And even then, I think it really was, I think it was formerly less like 1833 or something. It's crazy. But having said that, in the 18th century, you begin to have this loosening of society where in order, I I think, uh, you know, in, in order to become a leader of society, you no longer had to be, you know, that that wealthy Puritan to be considered, you know, members of the governor's council. That you begin to have a little more what we would call diversity of thought and belief and background in in society. And to me, again, this is a slow process. This is only just sort of starting, where we do have that, you know, the um, the Brattle Street Church established in Boston in what 1699, which is that beginning of of what we might think of a more rationalist, i.e. today Unitarian kind of faith as well. But again, it's not like someone threw the switch and said, the age of reason has begun. We're not going to execute any more witches. No, people still believed in witches for a long time and certainly throughout the 18th century. And then in fact, uh, 
what? And during the presidency of George Washington, there's a, a woman who's accused of witchcraft in Biddeford, Maine, and it's a mob violence. Actually, the court show, the case shows up in court by the people who've attacked her for allegedly being a witch, right? But I do think- This is a really key point that people yeah. still believe in witches. They just believe that it's no longer a matter of what we would today call criminal justice. Exactly. And the, the key here, even like uh, Increase Mather, when he writes his book about the Salem witch trials, and in some degrees, sort of kind of an urging for an end to them, he essentially says, you know what? It's really hard to prove someone's a witch. Witches are real. We know witches are real because God created Satan as a test for mankind, and Satan creates witches. And if you don't believe in witches, that's kind of a slippery slope. At what point are you going to question the existence of God? God, as a matter of fact, there are a number of signs. The Bible mentions witchcraft. The Bible witch says, thou shalt, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. And there are leading scientists in the late 17th century, including Robert Boyle, the creator of, in some way, the fathers of physics, who are trying to look at natural laws to help explain that witches exist, to help prove the existence of God, right? So, yeah, things, there's certainly people still believe in witches, but the point is, I think we proved in Salem that it's really almost impossible to separate out the witches from the innocent victims, right? And then, in fact, Increase Mather says, better that 100 witches live, you know, one, actually, I'm sorry, I think he says 10, it gets magnified later on by someone else, but better that, you know, 10 witches live than one innocent life be lost, right? Because we just don't know. So here's the problem. If you can't convict witches, how do we protect our society from them? And that's sort of a, a whole nother issue. But I do think that Salem kind of demonstrates in this way that, wow, that government kind of led, led by these Puritan magistrates with their top advisors being the Puritan ministers, they kind of steered us wrong here. I see it as the first massive failure of our government to not to protect the, the innocent. And it begins to question people, I think, about their faith in this system. And mm. a matter of fact, they held elections in Massachusetts for the legislature every year. And almost invariably, it's a very patriarchal, hierarchical, deferential system. And once you got elected in to be a, a member of the House or, or the, the Governor's Council, what we'd call the Senate, you were kind of there for life or for a long time unless something came up wrong. But I point out in my book, in the elections, the, after the Salem witch trials, when they have the next elections, half the House and the Senate are voted out. Uh, so there's, there's huge concern, distrust, thinking that somehow we have gone wrong. And I think it really, I think it shakes people to the core and makes them rethink. And so again, I don't, it's, it's not the end, but it's kind of the beginning of the end of Puritanism being this dominant force. Because look what happens when we put too much faith in this one system, in this one, in this one way of believing, and in this one group of people. So that's, that's kind of what I mean. But certainly, yeah. And in fact, yeah, the Congregational Church is alive and well to this day. And even with people getting really excitable and having visions and seeing the devil, around 1740, there are New Englanders in particular who are having mass hysteria even. And scholars have called this the Great Awakening. And there's all kinds of history nerd fights about whether it really existed or not as a, as a phenomenon. But we do know the revivals did. And so we have uh, like the diary of Hannah Heaton, that 20-year-old farm woman from Connecticut who she says how the devil twitched my clothes and she had dreams about seeing serpents and devils and hell opening up itself after hearing a bunch of ministers give what today would be called, you know, fire and brimstone sermons. But instead of clapping her in irons or accusing her of witchcraft, 
her family and her friends and her neighbors, they treat this as a, what today would be called a born again experience, a conversion. And so it's about how people choose to interpret their, their, their particular symptoms and circumstances. Exactly. There's a, um, Again, I, I highly recommend Boyer and Nissenbaum, Salem Possessed, as kind of, yeah. a, in some way, in addition to my book, of course, as an, but as, as really kind of, it is like the, the kind of founding book, the really modern look at Salem. And, in, and really, in, in the epilogue of that book, they talk about this, and they talk about Jonathan Edwards, and these troubled teenagers who are having these kinds of afflictions that today we classify as, as really kind of a signs of like religious ecstasy, right? And, and to some degrees, Jonathan Edwards is a very different time. By the 1720s, congregationalism has even sort of changed. You know, the Puritans have this very grim idea of who can go, who the elect are and how exclusive it is and, you know, who can go to heaven and who's just not going to go there. But by the time of Jonathan Edwards, it's a much more optimistic time when anybody can be saved if they were willing to admit their sins and accept God into their lives, right? And it's an immediate conversion, right, that yeah. can take place. And that, and again, it's really sort of where, where American evangelical faith and really the whole nature of American Protestantism really in some degrees traces its root to the, to the Great Awakening. But to me, it's, it's all about this idea that, again, in 1692, when Massachusetts Bay, the Puritan colony, this great Puritan experiment sees Satan attacking it thinking it's on its last legs and people are digging in and it's this very pessimistic attitude. Satan is in our midst. He has come to destroy us. Look in this. And so what happens when that, when that happens, the glass is half empty. You are seeing witches everywhere. Look in the 1720s and 30s and 40s. And by the way, in many cases, the great awakening some, some, had some strong, strong ties to, to Maine, much more optimistic, right? Just times are better. The colonies are better. Uh, It's a time of peace and prosperity, rising tides, rising fortunes. And again, salvation awaits you. I suppose a final comparison we should make, and this is something that comes up in my classes as well, is that for these often pretty young teenage girls and young women in, in Salem, accusing somebody of witchcraft and having these afflictions is one of those rare times when a single unmarried young woman Uh, When people in power and everybody says, you know what, you matter and you've got something to say, we're going to listen to you. And then likewise, when these revivals come through, again, it's a different kind of, they wouldn't have used this language of empowerment, but in a sense it was where you have these ministers coming in and saying, you can decide for yourself, you matter, you can make these weighty decisions and you have something to say, and we're going to pay attention to you. And so it's also this you know, I don't like being kind of prescriptive or anything, but are drawing sort of pat, the moral of the story is, but the ways in which a very different context in which these New England social networks decided that these young women mattered. And then in both cases, it's often these sort of outlets of saying, oh, you do have something to say here, but of course, radically different too. Exactly. Yeah. And, and particularly too, even, and even, you know, normally even women couldn't, w- it was tough to have a woman even testify in court. And you even then you had to be at least, you know, of teenage years before you could even do that. And again, normally you have no standing. Again, the the afflicted girls tend to be working class girls, probably illiterate from with very few prospects. And to all of a sudden have center stage is is a, is a very, you know, almost like an an intoxicating brew, isn't it to be put in into this position. And of course there's, there's all sorts of questions there even too over like, you know, how deliberative to this was and, and how, you know, what, what caused them to do this and, and so on. And to what degree, we certainly know there was, a, there was some clear fakery going on there 
But I also like to think in many cases, we were talking about some, some, again, difficult times with some, we certainly know that some of these victims of the frontier may have been suffering from what we now classify as PTSD or, or from domestic violence or in other cases, uh, you know, um, we know there's probably, uh, I think some people may, maybe some people may be victim of other psychological ailments like conversion disorder. Uh, so it's, so it's not just like, so it's not just like a bunch of girls acting up looking for attention. Right. I mean, right. at least, at least, I mean, that's kind of the, the quick and dirty answer, but it, it's, it's way more complicated than that as again, another reason why Salem's so fascinating. Before we leave the subject of the afflicted or anything, or the reality of this, I think another thing that I'm, I'm sure uh, early modern historians like us get on our high horse about modern smugness. I know whenever I teach Salem, I always ask my students, I say, let's have a show of hands. If you or a member of your family or friend network has seen a UFO, has had like a haunted experience with a haunted house or some other sort of out of body or paranormal experience. And most of the hands go up and I go, okay. So get off of your smug modern high horse about, oh, these dopey, backwards people who just hadn't discovered science yet. And that's why they foolishly believed all this nonsense about witches. I say like, look, you know, all these other things and you still, I said, if I say aliens, you're, you're going to be able to draw me a picture and you've never seen an alien and you have all this scientific, you know, evidence otherwise. So stop, go ahead and judge people in the past for all kinds of things but don't judge them for just not being as clever as you are which is really unfair this is exactly and this is like absolutely thank you so much for pointing that out because i like to point out these were not superstitious people no these people frankly like any society like ours is convinced that they knew more than anybody that they were the best and the brightest it was the physicians it was the governors it was the kings it was everybody harvard educated people presidents of the Harvard University, who believed in witches because witches were real, it's in the Bible. And I think the problem, what we don't realize is how that could possibly happen. But to some degrees, you know, as you, as you point out, is right. I, the way I might, the analogy that I make is like, so imagine you have this threat that is absolutely real and terrifying and means to wipe out your society, your faith, kill your family, take away everything you believe in, right? Banish you to eternal hell. That's pretty terrifying. And what makes it worse is you don't know who it is. Who it's an invisible enemy. It could be anybody. It could be a family member, and they don't even have to be here to be that threat. They could be in Boston or London or anywhere and still destroy you. Oh my God! Well, don't worry, don't worry. Our government's here to help us, and they they got it. They're working on it. Well, but how can they do that? How what? How do they know if they don't know who it is? Well, basic problem is if you swap the word 17th century witch for terrorist today, sure. you understand how devastating and difficult that that threat can be. And you also understand- well, as you How about out, in yeah. roughly 1990, the satanic panic of the Bang. America's daycares. Exactly. Where millions of people became convinced that there were these child murdering Satan worshipers babysitting their kids. Yeah. I think, but you know, the problem is, our, again, like our society, like most societies is convinced that we know all the answers. Right. And so- if, if the answer is that something happened in a society two or 2,000 years ago, or even 500 years ago, that we and all of our brilliance can't understand, well, the, clearly the most logical scientific explanation for this is they had help from aliens from some other galaxy, yep. right? You know, and, and how many seasons have that, has that show been on? So you're absolutely right. So I think this is, to me, this is, again, another reason why this is, this is such a lesson. Many, when I teach the Salem Witch Trials, I teach it as much as a course about social justice and scapegoating and a way to look at, at societies. Because again, 
to the point of the crucible, you know, in this case, you know, he got it right, actually, you know, Arthur Miller, every generation does have its Salem moment and has this crisis as it confronts itself and its troubles. And I think ultimately as societies, we're going to be judged as how we respond to those crises. And, and unfortunately, you know, all too often, like in Salem, we, we, we come up short. In, in Salem's case, we come up all way short, right? Yeah. Having asked you these big picture <laughs> questions about, you know, thinking about Salem, I'll ask you a, a, a focused wrap up question about George Burroughs. And so um, you've you've said a lot of thoughtful things about, you know, the meaning of Salem. So if we look at the story of George Burroughs and if we consider him and his person and his experience, how does focusing on George Burroughs shape how we think about this place and time in history? Again, I sort of come back to the big pictures. And one is like, again, it sort of, it short, sort of shows that the kind of none of us are safe, right? Hmm. <laughs> in that sense, right? If you're if this, in theory, well-respected member of society, you've gone the right college, gotten the right degree, or have the right job, boy, you know, the power of public opinion, the public of power of scapegoating can still bring you down. And, you know, that, that sort of the rumor mill. I get the big takeaway I have for something really for, for Burroughs and others is, is the fact that, that we really need to think about how we judge our friends and neighbors and, and people around us and, and our society, that we, that, you know, that we, we don't rush to judgment, um, that we try to give people the benefit of the doubt and be kind to each other. And again, maybe that's kind of a weird takeaway from the Salem witch trials, but I, I, I really, tab, I, I really think. What if my neighbor, <laughs> what if my neighbor is balancing a musket on his finger and lifting a barrel of molasses over his head? I know, you know, well, in that case, what, what I do is I say, can, hey, can I have some molasses, please? Right. Yeah. Because, wow, <laughs> bring it over here. You know, no, you know, this is the thing. I mean, right. Is like, is, is that, that that but that sort of power of, of suggestion and the power of rumor and how much of this stuff was actually seen and who actually gave Burroughs the benefit of the doubt or actually showed sympathy for him and said, the poor guy, give him a break. He's buried two wives. He's got like five or six kids from those two women who are living that he has to raise by himself. And, and, you know, God help him. Of course, he's going to, he's going to marry again and he's going to go off to the main frontier to try to forget this and leave him be. But, you know, unfortunately, the sobering thing with Burroughs is, is that shows that frankly to me is that nobody is, is ultimately safe and immune from this kind of treatment, this kind of fate. Mm. And that I think it's just sort of a really good cautionary tale for us to, to take in mind. But, you know, um, but also you got to be careful out there, I guess, too, right? You know, don't, don't, don't leave Harvard and become a minister on the frontier because bad things might happen to you. Right? Or just stay out of Massachusetts. <laughs> stay, well, if that, he that never is, went to know. Massachusetts, if he never went back to Massachusetts, he'd have been fine. That's something that we can get behind. That's I, you know, have, having said that, but having said that, and <laughs> you are talking to me from my home in New York, Maine, I like to point out, but I've, I've also been happily employed and worked, taught at Salem State University since 1994. So, you know, I want, again, I want to give the benefit of the doubt to Massachusetts mm. and, and even all those wonderful summer visitors who, who come here and spend time here and, and, and frankly help the Maine economy grow. So I'm not going to give true. them, I'm not going to give them too much grief, Ian. Fair enough. Fair enough. I too am employed by, <laughs> by the great by the great state of Massachusetts. Uh, exactly. So exactly. By the, not... by the by the by the by the by the state university system. Indeed. That's right. Yes. Of which we are of which we are we are fellows in. Absolutely. So for our listeners who are interested in a first stop book to know more about the witch trials. Now, besides your own, besides. so besides Storm of Witchcraft 
and The Devil of Great Island about a case in New Hampshire, both by Emerson Baker. You do not write under the pen name of of Tad. Besides those two books, uh, what would you recommend as a first stop for people who are interested and want to know more? I highly recommend my friend Mary Beth Norton's book, In the Devil's Snare, and particularly for people from Maine, because again, it does focus heavily on George Burroughs' story and is this, this wonderful story about the influence of the frontier on the, on the Salem witch trials. Very readable. It was actually, you know, she's been a, a, a Pulitzer Prize finalist a couple of times and a multiple award winner, Bancroft Prize winner. And she just really won another writer. award for yeah, something for else. Book, for her book, 1774. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So um, it, 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 is, it, is a, it is a very, very good read. I also, too, I recommend anything by, by Marilyn Roach. And her Six Women of Salem is incredibly good. Mm-hmm. And particularly, too, she, she's written, written a book uh, on the Salem Witch Trials, which is a, a, about a 400-page book that is a chronological guide. If you want to know what happened on this day in 1691, exactly what happened. And she really lays out the trial. So if you really, uh, if you really want to get into the nitty gritty of that, highly, highly recommend that as well, too. If I can just ask one, even one other thing I'll mention too, is kind of, I'll throw you kind of a curveball here. The, the book that I'm currently reading, which is Magical House Protection, The Archaeology of Counter Witchcraft. It's a book by a a, a British scholar, Brian Hoggard, and um, it deals with issues of how you protect a house against magic. For example, carving hexafoils or daisy wheels on the walls of the house, putting horseshoes over doorways, burying the skulls of horses or cats in the walls, and all of these for very good reasons, if you understand the way uh, counter magic works to protect your house. And again, why do we need counter magic, Ian? It's because people believe in witches. Brian Hoggard's book is really quite a good, if you want to understand this world of counter magic, and the short answer to this is, and by the way, it's something that I'm, I'm actively working on in my, in my next book, is most homes in New England that are, I think, more than a couple hundred years old or even less, have some signs somewhere, either carved into the woodwork or buried into the wall, some type of counter magic. You know, in my house here in York, which was built around 1800. We have a hexafoil carved into a door. We found a, a broad axe buried into the wall. And by the way, iron is, is a powerful metal that, that has counter magical properties. So if well, something is really point. interested, if people in October looking for something a little different take on witchcraft and magic, take a look at Brian Hoggard's work. Excellent. And we will be posting that on our Twitter feed and on our Facebook page. Great. And so then the, the final question for you is then what are you working on that you want to promote or what have you recently come sure. out with that you want to well, promote? The most recent book is is an exhibit catalog that I did a couple of years ago with, with my friend Nina Maurer, who's the, uh, and she and I did a project called Forgotten Frontier, Untold Stories of the Piscataqua. It was an, an exhibit and related materials at the old Berwick Historical Society, where we looked at life in the Piscataqua region of Maine and New Hampshire in the 17th century through artifacts, material, culture, and impul. And so um, that was kind of a fun project. And I've got an essay in that, as does my friend Lisa Brooks. We, we got her to do that just before she won the ba- her Bancroft Prize. Oh, um, that's a guess. But it's, yeah. but it's a really great, it's a really great essay. And of course, and actually Jeff Bolster, another Bancroft Prize winning historian who's a friend, wrote the introduction. And to some degrees, I'm still working on this project because what this is, is, is looking at Northern New England in the 17th century through material culture and archaeology. And mm. That's the long-term project I'm working on now and eventually we'll hopefully have a major book on, but folks, that's a few years away. So in the meantime, Forgotten Frontier is a fun kind of exhibit catalog with lots of illustrations to to take a look at and uh, more, more to come. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. All right, Tad Baker, 
thank you so much for joining us. Hopefully we will talk to you again soon. My pleasure, Ian. That's our show. If you liked it, follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at Meanly History. To help our fandom spread like panicked gossip about a local witch, leave a rating or review on your favorite platform. Join us again soon as we surprise you. That's next time on Meanly History. Thank you.